Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Kenneth Cadwell. He's a Reconati Family Associate Professor of Microbiology, uh, the Skirball Institute of Biomolecular Medicine at New York University uh, and the Grossman School of Medicine. I'm going to talk about uh, the virome and how it relates to infectious and inflammatory diseases. People, I'm sure, know about the microbiome, but the virome is uh, the viruses that, const- that live in us and live around us and live on all things. So, Ken, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so the virome, where are you studying the virome in what context? Inside of people or in certain environments? Yeah, maybe I should kind of define the virome uh, real quick because uh, it's kind of a new term and new field. Um, sure or at least an emerging one. Uh, the virome kind of refers to the collection of viruses that inhabit uh, uh, living things, right? And, and that certainly includes humans. And so uh, I have been looking at humans as well, but our uh, laboratory, uh, for the most part, tries to understand the functional consequences of viral infections. And uh, model systems like mice are really well suited for that. So a lot of the work that my lab does and a lot of our previous contribution has been uh, with mouse models, but we're, of course, interested in human health. All right, so you're looking at, at viruses, again, within people or within uh, my, you know, mice, because that's the model you're working with. Like, you know, your research, what, is it, uh, what does it primarily look at? Uh, we primarily look at mouse models and also... Uh, cultured human cells. Um, and uh, through our collaborative network, we try to uh, uh, also make correlations with uh, humans directly and uh, try to see how uh, viral exposure changes in uh, individuals with certain types of diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. So in a person, is there viral mostly bacteriophages or are there other, a whole bunch of other viruses that just somehow are commensal with our cells, but we either do or don't know the role of. Yeah, so I would say the majority, when you try to uh, make a catalog of all the viruses uh, in a sample, um, so let's uh, take the human gut as the uh, main example here. Um, Just like the human gut has lots of bacteria, uh, that's also a site where you could recover a lot of other types of infectious uh, material. And the way we do a catalog uh, frequently is to just sequence everything that's there. And when you do that and you ask what are the viruses that are present in the sample, most of them look to be phages that infect bacteria, exactly like you said. But it turns out that there are lots of uh, animal viruses. Um, in this case, I mean viruses that infect animal cells, including human cells. And we don't really know uh, what they're doing. Uh, traditionally, we studied viruses as uh, 
infectious agents that cause disease. But when you're pulling them out of all kinds of uh, individuals, including healthy individuals, uh, it's not so clear that they're just there to cause disease. And that's something that my lab is, is uh, really interested in. So, all right. So you're any, any idea even of the fraction, you know, if, if I look at a sample of myself, um, you know, what percentage of the viruses inside of me or bacteria, or sorry, virophages, um, you know, bacteriophages versus uh, viruses that aren't? Yeah, so I would say 90, 95% are going to be uh, phages, bacteriophages. And the remaining, uh, which we think is going to be really important, are uh, uh, non-phages and viruses that infect you directly. And the reason why, even though proportionally it's really small, we're really interested in them is because they might have an outsized effect because those are the viruses that infect your cells as opposed to the phages that will indirectly affect you by infecting the bacteria that are there. But if um, the microbiome is, is critical, that's a huge component of my health. You know, I, um, a virophage or a bacteriophage that uh, preferentially kills off a bacteria that I need or want or doesn't kill, you know, a pathogenic one that enters into me, can really change the dynamic of my health. But I guess you can't study everything. So, yeah, yes. So, so certainly what you said is uh, correct. And it, it may be even uh, more interesting in that because these uh, bacteriophages, they uh, have genetic material of their own, right? And when they jump in and out of bacteria, they don't always necessarily kill them off, they could contribute and uh, change the genome of the bacteria themselves. And uh, some famous toxins uh, made by bacteria are actually brought into their genome by these bacteriophages. Um, And also some really uh, intriguing recent findings show that our immune system is capable of reacting to these phages that are supposedly just inside bacteria. And uh, that's uh, kind of a little bit speculative right now, but uh, there's certainly tantalizing findings in the literature uh, suggesting that we need to really pay attention to these bacteriophages, even if they're not directly infecting uh, animal cells. When you're looking at, uh, so you're looking at IBD and then you're looking at what the change in a person's virome or, you know, how do you even establish what comprises someone's virome? You know, where do you sample from? Can you filter and you know do sequencing and filter out what's bacteria, what's you know human cells, what's virus DNA or RNA? Like how do you even know what's there in the first place? There are two, I would say, major approaches uh, that people can take. Um, one is if you know what you're actually looking for, then it's no different from uh, Uh, testing somebody for the presence of a particular virus uh, using techniques that have been around for a while. Um, But uh, often you don't know uh, what to look for because these are complicated diseases that we don't quite understand and inflammatory bowel disease um, is certainly in that category. And so what people can do now, uh, thanks to revolutions and the sequencing technology, is to sequence everything that's there. And we often call that shotgun sequencing or metagenomics. And uh, you could just sequence everything that's there, or you could try to enrich for uh, viruses uh, based on their unique properties. 
Because what happens when you sequence everything in a sample, especially a, a sample like uh, uh, the contents of your gut, uh, you get back a lot of bacteria and bacteria have bigger genomes. Uh, so it's kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack. And one way around that is to uh, purify virion-like particles. Um, in other words, try to get small things that are smaller than bacteria and get rid of anything that's not protected in a protein shell. Um, and then uh, you end up with what are mostly uh, sequences aligning to viruses. Uh, but something really interesting to point out is that when you do those kinds of experiments, you often get back a bunch of sequences that don't align to anything. And the idea is that those sequences probably align to viruses that just haven't been uh, uh, characterized yet. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, open territory here where people are still trying to uh, figure out everything that's out there. But that's basically how these uh, sequencing studies work. So uh, have you looked at, again, the virome of healthy people and then people with IBD to look for differences? I mean, I would think that, you know, if we know, for instance, that the prevalence of certain bacteria changes dramatically in people with IBD, we would probably also know that those bacteriophages specific to those bacteria will change in prevalence tremendously, too. I don't know if we know any more beyond that, but maybe that's a yeah. clue on what to do. So uh, that looks to be the case, and uh, uh, not my group, but uh, other groups, uh, both collaborators and uh, uh, many other people have tried different ways to characterize uh, the different viruses present in IBD patients. And uh, you are certainly correct that there are relationships where certain uh, bacteriophages go up or down relative to their certain bacterial hosts. The problem is that uh, it's very difficult to figure out the cause-effect relationship and which one came first, uh, with who's affecting who. Uh, because the more bacteria there are, that means the more phages there are that can infect those bacteria, right? So you don't necessarily know which direction it's happening in. Um, and the other challenge is because of uh, your earlier question, right, which is, what percent of all the viruses are actually the viruses that infect human cells. It's a small number, and uh, it's very difficult to uh, capture all of them in a sample. So knowing what uh, human viruses are associated with the disease uh, uh, turns out to be quite a bit of a problem as well. And the data right now is a little bit patchy and not very quantitative. And I think... Uh, well, the, again Oh, go ahead, please. Again, have a lot of people been sequenced that are healthy and then that have IBD and compared? Can you even do a comparison? And yeah, you know, absolutely. Has that been done? And has it been a virome comparison or a bacteria, you know, a microbiome comparison? Yeah, uh, that's absolutely been done. And uh, what's clear is that IBD patients are different. Um, and where it becomes really complicated is. Uh, you're taking a snapshot of healthy people and people with IBD. And IBD can be further broken down into Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And uh, those can be quite different diseases as well. And so at the very uh, big picture level, uh, these studies have shown that just like the microbiome is very different 
in uh, patients and healthy people. So is the virome. Um, but where the challenge has really come into play is uh, uh, not only getting a snapshot by seeing the dynamics of how the virome might change in an individual. And ideally, what you want to see is uh, these changes precede or predict uh, the disease, because then you can start to establish a more defined role for uh the role of these viruses in the disease. And uh, because that's been so challenging to do uh, directly in humans by making these kinds of observations, groups like my lab have been trying to understand the role of individual viruses and how they interact with uh, the host um, in uh, model systems beyond their role as pathogens or uh, disease-causing infectious agents. Well, I know in people, there's HPV, I mean, there's herpes, there's, there's all kinds of viruses that just kind of hang out. Yes. I mean, we don't really know what they do. And, and sometimes they come out when, when there's trouble. Sometimes they don't. And just, I mean, I don't know. That seems to be a harder relationship to figure out than to look at the differences, for instance, in, in, in people that have IBD longitudinally, their virome and their, you know, their microbiome. Yeah, and if they're hiding out, then uh, they become really difficult to find, right? Uh, so uh, there's been some studies that I really like looking at uh, humans with uh, HIV and monkeys with SIV. So they, they have their immunocompromised because of the virus. And due to the fact that their uh, immune system is compromised, they have a bloom of viruses that you don't always detect or hard to detect uh, in various parts of their body. Um, and my interpretation of that is that those viruses were normally there, but when you remove the breaks that keep them in check, uh, uh, now you're able to see them by these types of sequencing uh, techniques and they become really visible. So they're probably always there, uh, just like you say, with uh, herpes viruses and uh, papilloma viruses being some of the more common ones. So, I mean, what... What have you figured out so far? Are there any particular viruses that you're focusing on? Yeah, to my see favorite, how they interact with the host. Yeah, my favorite virus. Uh, thanks for asking. <laughs> my favorite virus is the norovirus. Um, so you may have heard that virus before. Uh, it's the it's famous uh, for causing the disease on cruise ships. Um, because it's a virus that's uh, spread fecal orally where people live in close quarters. Uh, so military barracks, uh, nursing homes, uh, daycare. Uh, uh, if you have kids, uh, you're probably not surprised uh, uh, by the fact that this virus uh, spreads like wildfire among kids because they'll bring it home and uh, you'll have uh, uh, often horrible vomiting or diarrhea. So that's, uh, that's the norovirus um, for you. But what uh, we found really interesting is that in mice, uh, they don't necessarily cause disease. And uh, we made two observations uh, that turned out to be uh, really surprising for us. So uh, we were studying inflammatory bowel disease, uh, in particular Crohn's disease, um, and kind of by coincidence, uh, my father had Crohn's disease. So it was a disease that was on my radar, uh, even though my training was in uh, virology. And we found that uh, uh, in a mouse model of this disease, 
a virus that was actually present in our animal colony that we didn't know was triggering the disease. And it turned out to be this mouse norovirus. And huh. that was really interesting to us because that is probably the poster child of a microbiome disease. Uh, because the gut is where you have all those bacteria present. Um, and this is a disease that mainly affects the gut and it could be quite uh, debilitating inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract. But in this case, we have a what looks to be a viral trigger, right? Um, so that was one thing that was interesting. And that was work done when I was uh, a postdoctoral fellow back at uh, uh, Washington University School of Medicine. And then when I started my own lab, I, uh, my group continued to research this virus and uh, we made another kind of surprising observation. So I mentioned that uh, it's serving as this disease trigger in a model of inflammatory bowel disease, but doesn't seem to be causing any disease in regular mice, right? That's why we didn't even know it was hanging around in the animal facility. Well, it turns out that it's actually beneficial in uh, normal mice. And we could show that hmm. it do a lot of the things that are, a uh, lot of the benefits provided by the bacteria in our microbiome can also be mimicked by colonizing mice with this virus. Uh, and that was uh, really uh, uh, kind of changed our view and also the trajectory of my lab uh, when we made that observation, um, because we were studying this virus as a disease trigger. And that was really useful for understanding um, inflammatory bowel disease and something I really care about. But now we're starting to talk about a virus having a symbiotic relationship with the host and uh, uh, a very particular uh, kind of symbiotic relationship that looks a lot like the uh, relationship we have with our gut microbiome. Um, so what have you figured out in particular with, you know, with IBD or Crohn's disease? Like what, you know, again, there's a big shift in the microbiome, but what, what other shifts are you seeing? Have you figured that out yet or you don't know yet in mice? Yeah, so in mice, we have a lot of uh, detail uh, what's happening at the cell biological level now. Um, and of course, uh, I have to give credit to many people in the field for chipping away at this question. Um, we were interested in a particular gene called ATG16L1 um, because that was the uh, gene that was uh, mutated in these animals that uh, we were using to study inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so that's where this viral trigger comes into play. And so we naturally ask, you know, what is it about this uh, mutating this gene uh, that makes the mice susceptible to the viral trigger? And it turns out that uh, by mutating this gene, uh, specialized cells in the uh, intestinal epithelium called panis cells uh, uh, die from a very inflammatory type of cell death. And these panis cells are important because they protect the stem cells in the gut. Uh, they make antimicrobial granules and produce other things that are really important. And what we found was that when you, uh, the same defects that we see triggered by this virus in these uh, ATG16L1 mutant mice. We also see in human patients of IBD uh, who have the ATG16L1 disease variant. Um, and so that's kind of giving us a hint, right? 
And another hint we have is that we could make mini guts in a petri dish. Uh, we call these uh, intestinal organoids. So we can make them from the mice and we could mimic the viral trigger in a petri dish and study the mechanism by what's happening there in this cell culture model. And we can also uh, make these organoids from biopsies that we get from patients. And uh, we can show that this gene that's important for IBD has a similar function in both uh, mice and humans. Um, and also that treatments, uh, drugs that uh, rescue the health of these organoids in mice can also do the same thing uh, in humans. So it's still a far cry from uh, saying, Eureka, we could you know, cure the disease. But we kind of like the idea that if you screen for this gene, uh, gene variant in humans, maybe we could target those people with certain treatments. And we think that those treatments, what they're doing is targeting the uh, detrimental immune response downstream of uh, viral infection. But you don't know the nature of the viral infection or how or, I mean, it, well, another question. If someone has IBD, you know, either Crohn's or the other forms, are they predisposed to getting certain kinds of viral infections? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't know if they're predisposed to getting viral infections or if it's the other way around, if uh, they're they're just as likely or unlikely to get certain viral infections, but the consequence of that viral infection is, is worse off. So the, if the mouse model is uh, telling us exactly what's happening in humans, um, which is never a direct uh, reflection, uh, so we've got to take it with a grain of salt. If the mouse model is absolutely correct, then it tells us that uh, your uh, genetic predisposition is not towards whether or not you get infected, but the consequences of the uh, damage caused by the immune reaction. And so we, we like the idea of therapies that target the resilience of the tissue. Uh, and then, you know, if that's the case, you don't need to necessarily find the specific virus, or maybe it's a not a virus, and maybe it's a bacterium or shift in the microbiome, but rather targeting the downstream consequence of that. Of course, uh, we, we do care what kind of viruses humans are infected with, and there's uh, evidence um, including by uh, our group that norovirus infections are associated with uh, flares specifically in this subtype of inflammatory bowel disease called Crohn's disease. Uh, but uh, your earlier question's a really important one, which is, is that just a reflection of IBD patients being more susceptible to this virus? Or is it that, you know, they're not any more susceptible, but when they get infected, uh, they're susceptible to the consequence? Um, and I think that's a really important question that uh, we still haven't figured out. And that's where uh, the technologies we were talking about earlier with the virome can really help us out in the long run. I mean, why not look at it this way? There's, you know, our microbiome associated with our cells, and it's associated for a reason. The microbes find what they need there, you know, and they give our cells what our cells need. So if the cells in a particular region are stressed and compromised by virus, by conditions, whatever it may be, then that would affect the bacteria that are living commensally with them. They may not be getting what they need. Their function may change, et cetera. Then the viruses that prey on those bacteria may be more successful. 
or less successful, or probably more. You know, consequently, if um, the bacteria are affected, then our cells will be affected, and the viruses that prey on the bacteria, and on and on and on. If you look at it as a, a community and a cycle, you know, you affect any member of the community substantially, it affects all the other ones. And if we're able to figure that out, I mean, that may be more, it seems like maybe more a sensible understanding of what's going on instead of assuming it goes one way only. Exactly. Uh, So I like to think of many of these inflammatory diseases as an imbalance in symbiotic relationships with microbes, right? So it's kind of like uh, the rainforest analogy that people often use with the microbiome, where if you have uh, lots of uh, diverse uh, organisms uh, in a healthy ecosystem, then everything's great. But once you start pulling apart uh, key relationships, then you kind of muck up the entire system. And that then you start going through this downward spiral. Um, and trying to reverse that is what many of us are trying to figure out um, for diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. Well, why wouldn't the focus then be on the ecology part of it? Why wouldn't the focus be on the what resources are being traded? There's no trading of resources. There's no point in being there. Yeah, you know, the, it's either the the environment being created that is an, an environment means like okay, well, I have to have food, so and I have to you know have an environment like food and and housing essentially. So if a bacteria is in a given environment, if the environment's hostile, meaning there's no food or uh, there's things attacking it, or there's no place to like live without, you know, various chemicals or enzymes attacking it, then it's, it's hostile. So why not look at it that way? Why not look at the, maybe the metabolome more? There's two roadblocks to just uh, fixing the ecosystem. One is that the what constitutes a healthy uh, microbiome, that could be something really individual specific. And I think we don't quite understand what the variables are that uh, makes uh, something a healthy or correct microbiome. Uh, it seems like a simple question, but uh, there's no clear consensus of what that is for an individual. Um, and forget but about there- it. It does have to be an underlying, I mean, you know, there's, there's right now there's, I don't know, at a seven and a half billion people, I'll, I'll be generous to say oh, a billion of them are, you know, a billion young ones are doing pretty well. Or I don't know, let's say, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'll say a hundred million of them are doing really well. They're young, they're healthy, et cetera. So we have a lot of examples of what works. There's got to be a lot of commonalities amongst those people. Uh, well, that, that that, that's, the fun, that's the funny thing. There's lots of differences, too. And uh, it's actually remarkable how different two healthy people's microbiome can be, right? And, and also, there's kind of this technical challenge where, let's say you just want to uh, replace a person's microbiome. Um, you have to have engraftment. And so it's possible that once the ecosystem uh, is altered in a bad way, reversing that using a current approaches could be really difficult, even if you had a pretty good sense of what you want it to look like. Um, and with the virome, it's uh, even more complicated because we don't, the, the data is a little sparse and we don't have the full catalog yet. Uh, the, it's, 
we've been studying the microbiome for a long time, and we're finally at this point where, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing uh, the fruits of the labor in the clinic. But with the virome, we're uh, more behind uh, because it's been difficult to identify all the viruses that are present. And I'm not even sure there is such a thing as a typical uh, or healthy virome. Uh, it just may be something that is there. And by the stroke of luck, it could be uh, uh, bad, good, or neutral for you. Uh, the other thing to uh, mention that's uh, part of the answer to your question is that maybe for certain diseases, like inflammatory bowel disease, there's a scarring of the immune system or the tissue. And it's possible that you kind of reach this point of no return where just returning the ecosystem to what it was before may not uh, reverse the disease, right? Um, and so that I think is a variable that needs to get more attention. And the therapy, the cure, might be a little different from the initial cause of the disease. Uh, that's really difficult to wrap your head around, um, but uh, it, it's something we need to consider when we talk about uh, microbiome-based uh, therapies and in the future, virome-based therapies. Well, very good. Um, quick question here as well before we go. What, when you said you could even have you know, two healthy people, for instance, and their microbiomes can be very different, what does that mean? You know, the, the constituents of their microbiome are very different, meaning the type of bacteria in them. Uh, what else is different that's been observed? Yeah, good question. Um, so uh, taxonomically, they can be extremely different. Uh, uh, so much so that species that are found in one healthy person might not be present at all in somebody else's else gut, right? Uh, but maybe some of their activities, uh, their metabolic activities, or some of the uh, proteins that are encoded by the bacteria uh, could actually be quite similar from person to person. Um, and in that case, it could be that the ratio of what the microbiome is making is altered between individuals. Uh, and that's kind of the direction the field is going in, uh, which is, uh, okay, now that we know that uh, microbiome A is different from microbiome B uh, and different from microbiome C, are there certain principles that link these microbiomes together in somebody who's healthy versus somebody who has a particular disease. I think even with that kind of enlightened understanding, uh, we'll find that the microbiome between individuals uh, can be quite different, even when in between healthy people. Uh, but uh, that's probably the right way to think of the microbiome. Um, and in terms of viruses, uh, the uh, viruses that infect bacteria are, uh, might have a similar contribution uh, to inter-individual variability in that sense. Um, viruses that infect human cells, uh, it might be pretty difficult to find commonalities in terms of uh, when we gaze at their sequence because they could be so different from one another. But in terms of the immune response that they evoke, I bet there's going to be some commonalities, and maybe that's how we could start to address your question, which is uh, not just what are they making, but what kind of response do they evoke from the host, and is that something that uh, is conserved between individuals? 
Um, any ideas on how this is going to be figured out? Where do you think that the, the answer may lie? Yeah, so uh, uh, the microbiome field is moving at a really fast pace. I should mention that the first virome uh, scientific meeting, or at least the first one that I know of, uh, took place March of this year. What group held it? Uh, the Keystone Symposia. And it was, it was at Lake Tahoe, actually. And uh, uh, because it was March, uh, I was at, uh, literally at that meeting when I got the email from NYU saying that uh, uh, we can't travel anymore. So I had to go back, you right. know, a day or two. But, uh, but that's, that's how far we are, right? And uh, there's been some successes already. Uh, the, the, the biggest success uh, with the viral field uh, has been um, kind of cataloging and building this uh, encyclopedia of viruses that are out there. And thanks to that resource, we could, whenever there's a new virus out there, right, like SARS coronavirus 2, uh, we could pinpoint uh, exactly what it is uh, taxonomically much more rapidly than before. Uh, but the real challenge is all the things that we've been talking about, um, which is how do these viruses interact with the other infectious agents in the gut, especially the bacteria, but not exclusively? Uh, how exactly do they interact with our immune system? And what are the functional consequences? Uh, uh, we, when we found that noroviruses are beneficial uh, in mice, uh, this was not that long ago, and it was really the first description of that. So. We have quite a bit of work to do in terms of understanding viruses beyond the role as uh, as uh, disease causing organisms. And uh, uh, my interest is especially in the gut, and I think that's going to be a rich uh, source of really interesting uh, interactions. Just because there's just this huge density of infectious agents that pass through our gut all the time. Yeah, for the most part, they don't bother us. Exactly. I, guess I, would, I would guess a very, very small percentage too. That's right. And there's there's evidence that uh, so-called asymptomatic infections by noroviruses and, and really many other uh, viruses in the gut happen all the time. And uh, uh, like you said, it's probably really a really good thing that we don't notice it all the time. Hmm. Well, very good. Well, Ken, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to, uh, you know, to learn more? Uh, they could find uh, me on uh, Twitter, and also my lab has a website. It's www.cadwelllab.nyu.edu. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, having a chat with you. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.